0: We are in uh, Psalm chapter 17, if you would turn there now. Uh, And then as you turn there, keep your finger there and go to 2 Timothy, if you would, chapter 4. Uh, Some of us, many of us, few of us, I don't know the number, uh, take part in a Bible reading program. And this past week we read the book of 2 Timothy. And 2 Timothy 4 is... The text in the Bible that tells a preacher what preaching is and how to preach. So, the greatest command in the Bible is love the Lord God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second greatest is love your neighbors yourself. And so it dawned on me for the first time in my life after reading this for the thousandth time that 2 Timothy 4 is telling me how to love you. It's defining for your pastor when he preaches, here's how to love my people. And so if you want to know how a pastor is supposed to love you in the pulpit, here it is. Another way to say this is, because of sin, we're always corrupted in our understanding of what love is. Do you understand what I mean? You think loving you out there in the seats, you have an expectation of a definition of what it looks like for me to love you, right? And the question is, is it a biblical expectation? Is your definition of what loving preaching is God's or man's? Is it true or false. And so in our day, typically, a preacher is determined to be good or loving if he has good stories, makes you laugh a little bit, titillates your mind with new and interesting facts that you didn't know before. And that's the definition Right. And or or maybe said negatively, he's loving if he doesn't offend me at all. That's our definition of love from a preacher. And so I wanted to do this, and then related to Psalm 17. Let me just read. So 1 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and dead, and by his appearing his kingdom. So Paul, this is one of his last letters, just before he was martyred for the faith, he's writing to his second in command, who's going to take over his ministry, the one thing that Timothy must do. I charge you. This is it, Timothy. I'm about to go. You're going to take over. Here's my charge before God, before Christ, before your judge. Preach the word. So here's the first part of the definition of a pastor's love for you. He ought to preach. And you ought to preach the word. Not just preach, but What? The word. So a preacher is loving to you if he's preaching the word. Now, the word preach isn't a mild word, it's an aggressive word. It's a word used for battle, a herald. There's force with it. Can I offend you already? It's a very manly word, it's not womanly at all. And I'm just going to let that lay. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And then he gives three terms that define the kind of preaching. Rebuke or reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. If you were to give a general category for those three words, what category would you put it under? Discipline. Somebody said it. Who said it? Lynn. All right. Nancy. Nancy loves attention. <laughs> it's, they're, dis, they're terms of discipline. So if you are defining preacherly love for you in the pulpit, in preaching, it's discipline. How many of you came this morning expecting Discipline. That the only way that I'm supposed to love you is if how I preach the word is given to you as a way to reprove you, to rebuke you, and to exhort you. And then he defines a caution for the preacher with complete patience in teaching. That his discipline's hard, and every parent knows that if they... Discipline with too harshness, too frequent, you know, just always on him, it it wears the kid out, can become very difficult. And you can break him. You can cause him to be embittered. And so pastors have to take care in their preaching that's supposed to be lovingly disciplined, that it's patient, and there's a tone of teaching, of instruction, of explanation, of clarification, which is what I'm doing. Why do we preach the way we preach here? Well, because it's what the Lord defines as loving you. This is something, if you were to continue on, that the time is coming when people not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears that will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Turn, and they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths like vaccines. So, you have a temptation. My temptation is to be too harsh. I need more patience and more kind of an instructing tone. The temptation for you is that you will only listen to what you want. You demand that I preach according to your desires. That's why you watch Fox News, because you will not give an ear to anybody except they say what you want them to say. Give me Sean Hannity or else I die. Because you will not stand for anybody telling you anything but what you want to hear. That's what you determine to be loving. My pastor loves me because he only tells me what I want to hear. What good to you is that? What good to you is that if I just scratch your itch? And so what is loving and preaching? Well, it's to not listen to you. It's to preach the word, to discipline you where you need it. So this is what I try to do every week. I'm not that good at it. I don't mean that as like um, false humility. This is really difficult because it's not just preaching what is true in the word. It's preaching what is true in the word to you where you need it where you have temptations and sins and fears it's taking the truth of psalm 17 and applying it to like insert your name here it's it's applying it to where i know you have temptation and sin it's not just preaching psalm 17 preaching Psalm 17 for Pine Grove Community Church. For you. That's what it's for. To reprove, rebuke, and exhort you. That's what we're doing here. And so if you wonder why we try to preach the way we preach, that's mainly it. That's mainly it. And now... I hope, I'm not saying this because I've been getting a bunch of pushback or criticism. Not, not at all, actually. Uh, I'm saying this just because it's what I thought of on Thursday when I read 2 Timothy 4, and I thought it'd be helpful to you. <laughs> so no, no, nobody's freaking out over our preaching. Um, I just thought it w- would be helpful to you. Let me read Psalm 17, and we'll try to honor God by preaching it accordingly. Hear a just cause O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free from deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You've tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the words of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me. O God, incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love. O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your high. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They have set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord. Confront him. Subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children. They leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Let's pray. Lord, you are our portion, and so we promise to keep your words. Give us your spirit that we might do so. The world is full of your steadfast love, O Lord, and so by the power of your Holy Spirit, teach us your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the unique things of Psalm 17, if you'll note in the um, title, typically in your Bible you have a title that says, In the Shadow of Your Wings. That, that's not a part of Scripture that was added just to give you some summary of what was coming. The line under that, A Prayer of David, was actually written by David. And, and this psalm he titles, A Prayer Previously, it was a psalm or a mictum or to the choir master. There was a musical annotation. This time it notes it's a prayer. And so the psalms are songs, but they're also prayers. I don't think you're unaware of this. You've probably used these in your life. At different seasons, there's psalms that are helpful, and they can actually become your Language of prayer. In fact, our Lord did this. He both sang and prayed the Psalms. On the night he was betrayed, when he was celebrating the Passover with the disciples, it says, and they sang a hymn before they went out to the Mount of Olives in Matthew 26, 30. They sang a hymn. Hymn there is a kind of psalm. And there was a psalm that was always sung during the Passover. Christ sang it. He sang the psalms with his disciples on the eve of his murder. While he was hanging on the cross, he prayed a psalm. My Lord, my Lord, why have you forsaken me? You can see that in Matthew 27, 46. And so the songs that our Savior sang and the prayers that our Savior prayed both came from the book of Psalms. And so we are Christians, What's the definition of a Christian? Somebody who follows Jesus. And so, dear church, one of the ways we're trying to lead you in following Christ is to follow the kind of songs that Christ sang and the kind of prayers that he prayed. And he sang the Psalms, our Lord did. And so we're supposed to do that. He prayed the Psalms, and so we're trying to learn that. The context of this psalm, again, as with most, we don't know. We don't know exactly what was going on. And again, that's the wisdom of God because if we knew the exact instance, we wouldn't use this psalm widely applied in our lives. We would think it only applied very narrowly to that one kind of instance. But here, this psalm is about an injustice. David is suffering injustice at the hands of people within the people of God. And so that general category of I'm being slighted, Somebody's lying about me. Somebody is treating me unjustly. Now applies in every kind of instance to your life. And so Psalm 17 is given to you when you're wronged. How do I deal with this? What do I sing? What do I say? What do I feel? What do I pray? So siblings, your other siblings will wrong you. They'll lie about you to your parents, won't they? probably happened this morning. It happened in my house, and I shouted up the stairs, Be quiet! It's Parenting 101 right there. If you want your kids quiet, you just yell real loud. <laughs> and I repented to myself. I hadn't apologized to my girls yet. Sorry, girls. Right? Because they were fighting, and one was lying about the other. So what do you do that then? That's an injustice. Well, Psalm 17 is meant to help you. So he's showing us how believers deal with being wronged. Now, ultimately, this is written by the king of Israel, David. He was just a forerunner to the true king of kings, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was the one finally and ultimately lied about and mistreated by the people of God. Jesus Christ lived Psalm 17. He, among all of us, had a just cause. He had men and women who were clamoring for his death, even though he had done nothing wrong at all. You remember the crowds? Release Barabbas, crucify him, crucify him. Why? What wrong has he done? Crucify him, crucify him. So Jesus Christ is the one whom Psalm 17 finds full embodiment in, and because we're Christians, it's ours. It's yours. Now, one of the curious truths of Psalm 17 that we'll find, you may find difficult for you is David is here claiming to be right. But he's not self-righteous. David is saying to God, in this situation, this group is evil and wicked, and they're treating me unjustly, and I'm right. Search it out, God. Check it out. Try me. You'll find nothing in verse 3. I'm right. They're wrong. Deal with us each according to that. That's the prayer here. So Psalm 17 is a prayer song of David where David is showing in a song how he deals with being wronged or treated unjustly by others. He's seeking vindication. Verse 2. From your presence, let my vindication come. He's asking God the judge to sit on the bench, strike the gavel, and judge between him and his persecutors. So, let, can we, this is pretty easily applicable right now. We're gospel people. We're justified before God in heaven, right? And you're justified before God in heaven not because you're so good. This is the gospel, right? You're justified before God in heaven though you're a miserable whelp of a sinner because Christ was so good. He's your justification. And sometimes, in counseling people who are in conflict, one of the things we mean well in saying is it's okay. You're justified before God. You don't have to worry about the injustice of your husband or your wife or your children or your coworker or whatever. You have Christ's justification, you're accepted by God. Your identity is secure in him. It doesn't matter what people do to you. And that's true, right? But that isn't all the truth. Sometimes as Christians, there is actual real injustice. And it's not, the Bible doesn't only say, your identity is secure in Christ. Just that's enough. No, the Bible says your identity is secure in Christ. Here's Psalm 17 to pray against your enemies. Have at it. Another way to say this is, at the end of the book of Romans, Paul tells them, don't avenge yourselves, beloved. He's identifying that there are people treating them unjustly. And he, his counsel to them is, don't avenge yourselves. Why? He doesn't say because your identity is secure in Christ. He says, because vengeance belongs to God. He will repay. That's what Psalm 17 is doing. Psalm 17 is the prayer of somebody who realizes God is a just judge, who loves his people, and when they are treated unjustly, they are to take comfort in and pray for the reality that justice is coming. Right? Do we see anything like this in the New Testament? Or is this just an Old Testament deal? How many of you are familiar in the book of Revelation, where you see saints that were beheaded for their testimony of Christ, and they're in heaven? And what are they praying for? How long, O Lord, till justice will come on those who murdered us? This is in heaven. (laughs) This is in heaven. People who have departed this earth violently, suffering gloriously for faith in Christ, and they're in heaven with all pleasure and all joy. And what are they praying for? Justice. And so, brothers and sisters who have been treated unjustly, yes, your identity is secure in Christ. Yes, you have full justification, acceptance before the Lord because of what Christ has done. And yes, you can learn to pray for God's justice to come upon those who have wronged you. This this problem of injustice is a problem that goes back to the garden. Cain and Abel, right? You have the ungodly and the godly. The seed of the serpent and the seed of God and conflict within the family, within the people of God, within the church there, if you will. This conflict has been ongoing. Moses suffered it, didn't he? He was constantly opposed by people within Israel, lied about, maligned, creating factions to oppose him, the prophets, the Lord. So what do we do with injustice? Well, Psalm 17 shows us, God, hear hear my just plea, attend to my cry. Let my vindication come. Try my heart. Test me. You'll know that I'm not in the wrong here. And please deal with my enemy. Now, we can apply this all over our lives. First, take care in wronging others, brothers and sisters, especially believers. Take care how you talk about them. You do not want to be on the wrong side of this. You want to be on the right side of treating your brothers and sisters godly. Think of this in relation to the Lord's Supper. We recently preached through 1 Corinthians 11. And in 1 Corinthians 11 is teaching on the Lord's Supper. The Corinthian church was selling the Lord, celebrating the Lord's Supper in a way that was terrible because they were celebrating a meal that celebrates our unity well, they were really awfully mistreating each other lying, slandering, gossiping, taking each other to court. And the Lord was disciplining them by causing sickness and even death because of their unjust treatment of each other. Because there were, I'm sure, people in the church praying Psalm 17. God, so-and-so in the church is suing me. I'm in the right. Deal with them. God was. So the first application is make sure you're on the right side of this. And if you're on the wrong side of it, make make amends. Second, apply it to your relationships. Uh, All relationships have to learn how to deal with conflict because there's sinners involved on both sides. And Psalm 17 is teaching one way to deal with conflict. That is, it it doesn't work when somebody is mistreating you just to give it back all the time. It does work to look at God and say, do you see this, God? Do you see what they're doing, what they're saying? Would you... Protect me. Would you bring justice here? So siblings, learn this prayer. Stop yelling. Right? Husbands and wives, let, let God deal with your spouse. In the church, at the workplace. This is very applicable. So how, how do we do this? This past Friday morning, I entered through that door, and when I got out of my car, there were some neighborhood kids just fighting. And a little boy or a little girl I couldn't tell was just screaming, Stop it! Stop! at the top of his or her lungs. It just, just, I'm, I'm assuming another sibling was irritating him or her to death. And the little one's only recourse was to scream loud enough to get the attention of the adult so that the adult would come and bring justice. It's actually a very right picture there in a way. We can cry to God like that, can't we? That's what David's doing here. He's a son of God being mistreated by others within the people of God. And he's crying out to the Father for help. Another way to say it is, how do you imagine or how, how does it look like in your life to deal with conflict? What, what's your default go-to when you're being wronged or when you enter into conflict? We typically talk about it in one of two ways, fight or flight, right? Either put your dukes up and you're going to go into it, or you clam up, shut down, And get out. It's one or two. Which is it for you? What do you do? Do Do you clam up and shut down? Do you just get grumbly within? Do you complain to others? Do you lash out in anger? This is much of our relationships. How do we deal with conflict? Psalm 17 is given to us as a song... As an example of a godly way, a much more way pleasing to the Lord to deal with relational conflict. First, he just cries out to God Hear my cry, attend, give ear, let my vindication come. Verse 13 Arise, O Lord, confront, subdue, deliver me. So I notice that this is likely David's first resort, not his last. His initial inclination is to go to the Lord with the problem. How about you? Teens. One of the things that happens as you grow up in your parents' household is when you get to that 12, 13, 14, 15, you you want to become your own person. you have a need to differentiate from mom and dad. And your mom and dad, that freaks them out. Because you're becoming independent, and you've always been dependent on them, and they're really afraid of what's going to happen to you when they let go, and this can create conflict, and you can feel like your parents are just all in your business. Is that how you kids say it today? That's how we said it. I don't know what you say. They're 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 sticking their nose in where they don't. Mom and Dad, I got it. I can handle it. And parents are thinking. No, you can't, because if you'd handle it in a way you could, you wouldn't be handling it like that. And so there's conflict. And, so, and, and lots of times, you know what, your parents get it wrong. They're too involved. They say the wrong thing. They say the wrong thing too many times or the right thing too many times. And, and, and you feel oppressed and hemmed in and smothered. What are you going to do there? How about just cry out to God? How about you learn to take it to the Lord and still treat your parents with honor and respect? How about rather than yelling at dad or mom, you yell to the Lord and have more peace in your home? So, first, he cries out to God. Second, he cries out to God because he knows the love of God, he knows the justice of God. He knows God is for him. Look at some of these verses. Look at verse 6. I will call upon you for you will answer me. Jesus told the parable in Luke 18. In Luke 18, the parable is of a little, frail, poor widow going to the wealthy, important judge. And the judge doesn't want to deal with her because she's got nothing for him. She's unimportant. She's little. She's got no political clout. She doesn't know anybody who could put any influence on him. He, he doesn't care to deal with her. <clears throat> and yet, day after day, she comes back to the courthouse. Day after day, maybe with a walker. you know, And he just keeps... Denying, denying, and then finally he's kind of worn out, and so he gives her justice. He does what is right, even though he's not doing it for right reasons. And the the parable is one of those is, if an unjust judge would give justice to a widow who pleads her cause day after day, how much more will God, who is not only a just judge, but your good father, give you justice. And at the beginning of the parable, Jesus says, and, he, and the editorial note is, and he told this parable that you might always pray and not lose hope. That's David. I will call upon you because I know you'll answer me. I know that that's what you're like. Do you know that that's what God's like? Do you have faith to believe that God will answer your cry? So dear wife... As you desire your husband's attention, his affection, you want more from him by way of, like you don't only want his attention when he wants. You want his attention like that all. You want him to cherish you. And it's been years. What do you do with that? I will call upon you, O God, for you will answer me. And you keep going to him. That doesn't mean you don't approach your husband. That doesn't mean you don't come to the elders. <laughs> he cries out because he knows God. Look at verse 7. Wonderfully, wondrously show your steadfast love. He knows that God is a God who keeps his promises of love for his people. And he's calling on him to wondrously show it. To show up and to... Do what God always does when his people have lost hope. Just fix it. Give them justice. Verse 8 We are the apple of God's eye. Keep me there. He protects us under the shadow of his wings. Hide me there. He has this wonderful view of God's love and justice for his people. So do you see God like that? Do you see God is just wonderfully inclined to your greatest good? The difficulty is there that we, our timing and our expectation of what God is going to do and when we want him to do it is often different than what God knows is best for us. This is where we have to have faith that God will answer us and he'll answer us in the way that he wants to that, That is ultimately the best for us. So if you're a single crying out to God for a godly spouse and you're waiting, there might be some work you have to do. But wait on the Lord. Cry out to him. He is good. He holds us as the apple of his eye. He shelters us under the protection of the shadow of his wings. He's a good father who does his people good. He's a refuge. He's a hiding place. We're being taught in Psalm 17 where to go. Now let me be careful here. We're talking about injustice. And we're talking about taking our injustice to our Lord who loves us as an infinitely and eternally good Father. There is injustice on this earth that you go to God with and you go to the authorities with. I am not here saying that if you're being abused, that you can only go to God as a Christian. No, 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 no. There is justice on earth. God gives the sword to earthly uh, police and judges and so on, and we are to take those to him. God has given you fathers in the church that you're to take injustice with. I've said this before, and I want to say it again. In your marriage, if there is trouble... And it's, and it's trouble that's been there for a bit. You, you should come to the elders with it as you cry out to the Lord. Let me say it this way. Crying out to the Lord should never be disconnected from taking godly action. Often, the best answer to the cry to the Lord is your action. We, we sometimes want to separate those. As if I'm crying out to the Lord to fix my marriage, but the help he's actually given me that's right there, I'm not willing to take action on. It's the old story of a guy on top of his roof as the floodwaters are rising. God help me and he... Sends a canoe, and he says, no, I'm praying to God to help me. And then the canoe goes, and then God help me, and a rescue boat comes. And he says, no, I'm waiting on the Lord. God." Will. And then he, the flood right there, and he, God help me, and a rescue helicopter comes. And he goes, no, I'm good. And then he drowns, and he blames God, right? Like, just get in the boat. Like, call an elder. This is what God has designed to call your brothers to say, God, or brother, uh, my wife I'm really struggling, please help. Why am I only picking on marriage? Because most of you are married. You can apply this to friendship, to work, right? So God is a refuge, he's a hiding place, and we are to call on him in all of our trouble because he'll help. He is our help. Do you know that? In fact, he wanted to so prove to you of how much he wants to help you by sending his own son to die for your greatest need your sin and death and hell and Satan. He'll help you. Parents with little ones when they're crying at two in the morning for the tenth straight night, he's a help there. He is a refuge there. I know the thoughts that go through parents' heads at that time. They aren't pretty. He's a help. David concludes the psalm with a contrast in verses 14 and 15. In verse 14, his enemies who are causing himself, he's telling himself that they're just worldlings. That all they have is this world. In fact, he paints a picture that God has really given them a lot of blessing in this world. They have a, Portion in this life. They have lots of children, wombs that are like treasure chests. They keep having kids. Notice that. Isn't that awesome? Children are such a blessing, even on the unrighteous. The Bible is such a beautiful view of children as a blessing. They have have abundance that they're going to be able to leave to their children, but that's all they have. And these are people within the, the people of God that He's talking about here. These are believing unbelievers, if you know what I mean. These are Folks who confess faith in the Lord but don't really have it. But they have this life, but that's all they have at the end of the day. And he who dies with the most toys wins, kind of folks. That's it. But what does David have? (laughs) He'll be able to see God. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. All right, so when I awake, when I awake, what does he mean there? Yeah, he means after death. Now, we can apply that likewise. The Bible says that weeping lasts for a night, but joy comes in the morning. What does he mean there? He means seasons of sorrows are like a nighttime. And sometimes the nighttime is really long when you're in sorrow. But that season will change and joy will come. <clears throat> Ultimately, it will come when we come before the Lord. So, we, believers, have God. <laughs> That's enough. Does that let you down? Does that sound like. That's the clincher. Like You're watching a movie, and it's got this really good point of conflict like this. There's conflict, but then the resolution is just like, that's the resolution? Huh. It, do you feel like that when you read verse 15? The resolution is that I get to see God after suffering all this injustice? That's it? You know why I'm saying that? Because that was my response when I read this. (laughs) I mean, I I know what I should say. And what I should say is, Jesus is enough. It's so good. I'll see God someday. Like, I know that's what I would say if I was in Sunday school. And that's true. But my heart is so dull My affection for God is often so cold that verse 15 doesn't strike me like a bolt of lightning. You know, it, it, it barely moves me sometimes. And yet that's the resolution for believers, ultimately. We'll see God. We'll see Him. In Romans 8 it says that all the affliction that you suffer in this world will seem as nothing in comparison with the glory that's to be revealed to us. All the afflictions. you know what Christians have put up with in this world for their faith? The rapes women have endured, the murders, the dashing of children's heads against rocks. Romans 8 says to those who are living in the Roman Empire there, who were Christians being lit on torches to light pagan love feasts, what they're saying is that will seem as nothing when you see the glory of God. That's how great God is. That's how joyful it'll be to see God. When I awake, I will see God. One of the things that happens with us as Christians, we know verse 15 is true, Is right? We know it's true. And yet it feels like to us just something that Christians say. Like, how do I actually experience that? How does that move from, just being something that I read and something that the preacher says a lot and something that Christians say a lot and something that Christians put on posters and in cards? How does that move from that to, like, I get it. I experience it. I feel it. It's mine. How does that move from that to that? Well, let me tell you how you'll probably have to go through a lot of suffering. You'll probably have to have the the snot kicked out of you a whole bunch and prove that God is enough. I went on a missions trip at my previous church in Indonesia with two other members training church planters. When I got back, I got back to discover that the other elders had... Surveyed a bunch of people who had previously left the church who were really mad at me and had several pages of documentation of lies and slanders against me. That's what I returned from the mission trip to. And then an elder's wife and another woman had gone around to others and presented it at a congregational meeting when they were voting on my salary when I was out of the room. I mean, it was a kick in the. I mean, it was awful. It was devastating. I'd spent seven years loving this church. These are people that I trusted. Friends. It was awful. I can't even tell you how awful that was. Mandy would go around town shopping at odd times for fear of running into any of them in the community. We just met with another pastor and wife up here whose wife was at a restaurant in Eagle River, and she's looking around terrified if she'll meet somebody else from her church who did her husband so much wrong. And you know one lesson we learned through that, verse fifteen is true. And the only way I would know verse fifteen is true is I went through that. So bring it on. (laughs) Right? This is why we can rejoice always, because verse fifteen is true. And when you're in the pit, when they're piling on, what God will be proving to you is, beholding My face will be enough. When you awake, you'll be satisfied with seeing me. That's what he's proving to you. So bring on the cancer, right? Bring on the marital strife. Bring on the boss who just has unreasonable expectations of you and just grounds you into dust. Bring it on for a Christian, right? Bring on the critical theory. Bring it on. Because what are they going to prove to you? That God is enough but you're going to have to go through it in order to to believe it. You're just too proud otherwise. You're too full of yourself. And you need to be humbled. And God loves you enough to do it. That's what Psalm 17 is saying. Isn't that fun? It, It ain't fun at all. It sucks. But it's worth it. Let's pray. Father, help us. I do not want any of these saints to go through anything that has to prove verse 15. I don't want my kids to have to go through it. I don't want to go through it. And yet you are a God who leads us into the valley of the shadow of death where you teach us that we don't have to fear that evil for you are with us. Your rod and your staff are a comfort to us. And so God, give us faith to go into those things. Give us faith to be the kind of church that stands on truth, no matter what we suffer, because you are enough. And may that not just be platitudes. May, may it not just be something that we hear from others is true, but that we have the faith to believe that you are sufficient, that to be in your family is worth going to hell and back, because we'll be satisfied with your likeness. And so, God, we ask for your help now. In Jesus' name, amen.